can take your Bibles and turn with me if you would. Uh, you see there Hebrews 2, um, and you can certainly turn to Hebrews 2. We will actually be spending most of our time this evening in the Old Testament, but we will begin certainly here in Hebrews 2. As we spend the next three weeks in a topical fashion, I've been doing a lot of topical lately, it's very uncommon for me, but as we uh, spend the next few weeks in a topical fashion talking about the nature of signs and wonders. For the past several weeks, we have, in fact, been sitting in Hebrews chapter 2, considering any number of concepts surrounding this passage. Uh, first, we explored the nature of Paul's connection between angels and the law. And I, I gave that to you as a foundation, recognizing that uh, within the scope of Jewish um, understanding, Jewish history, Jewish doctrine, Jewish theology, it seems as though the connection between angels and the law was one that was somewhat implicit. Paul did not spend any time explaining it, uh, nor was it explained in uh, the book of Acts when Stephen spoke of it. Uh, it was just kind of laid out there, implicitly stated, as well as Paul in Galatians, that these things were so and expecting people to understand them. And so we sought to understand them. We went back to Exodus 23. We looked at this angel that, that uh, God warned about, uh, having followed after the law that would lead them into Canaan and uh, warning the nation of Israel against this angel as this angel led them. And we left it somewhat ambiguous because the Bible simply does not give us that much information about this. We did the best we could with what the Bible has given to us. And then after that, we were able to take that foundation and actually speak to the practical application, the therefore of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, the actual point of the text that we should, because of the superior place uh, of, of Christ over the apostles and, or excuse me, over the prophets and the law, the law and the prophets, right? We should place more weight upon this message of grace through the Son than even the Jews do upon the weight of the message of the law through the prophets and as given by the disposition of angels. Just to establish this context again, let's read it. Hebrews chapter 2, if you're there, we'll look at verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, remember that's the law, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will? So the call is that we give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, and this call is supported by two primary arguments. First, that the law spoken and disposed of by angels was steadfast. It was so authoritative that any infraction was met with an absolutely just recompense. And the Son is superior to angels and to the prophets, and the message of the Son is thus superior to the message of the law, and so therefore holds more weight not less. Second, that God has borne witness to the Son as his messenger and thus to the validity of the message, to God's approval of the message and to the superiority thus of that message of Christ to the message of the law shown not just by Jesus but then by his apostles, by these witnesses and finally he says by signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and with gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And it is this last little bit that I want to spend the next three weeks of our evening services on. Signs and wonders is a topic of interest and controversy in the modern church. There are numerous groups and denominations which believe signs, wonders, and miracles are perfectly valid expressions of the Christian church throughout time and throughout every age. We would typically lot this into a group of people that we would generally call charismatics. They get that name rooted in the Greek word charisma, which is a word which means a gift or a bestowment. 
And they draw specifically from the example of the early church, where in the book of Acts, as we'll explore next week, there are any number of expressions of these gifts, these signs and these wonders that are being performed in the early church that are convincing people of the power of God through the church in that age. And of course, then they found their teaching on various passages of great importance in the New Testament. Naturally, there are any, numer any number of subsets of this broad category that we would call charismatics. They disagree among themselves on which gifts are valid, on the nature of their validity, when they are appropriate to use, how often they should be exercised, and what form they should be exercised, and all the lot, right? And then there's a group of believers who, as a general rule, um, do not doubt that these gifts were at one time manifest, but who believe that they have since ceased to have a regular function in the local church or ceased to function altogether. They draw this from the precedence of God's working in the world, the essence of their interpretive method of the Bible, specifically rooted in the numerous the theological errors that most charismatic groups are entrenched in. And then, of course, the simple observational fact that we don't see these gifts spontaneously manifest themselves among us. You don't find in cessationalist churches a person spontaneously start to use a sign gift, as you might assume would happen in the case of these sign gifts being a regular part of local church functioning, even if the church did not receive them regularly. And like with charismatics, so too with the group that we often call cessationalists, they disagree among themselves about the nature and the degree of the cessation, right? Some believe that it was, it, things have ceased altogether. Others believe that it's just not a regular function of the local church and such. How do we iron all of this out? What does the Bible say? And how do we take what the Bible says and interpret it in a manner that is right both with the dispensation that we find ourselves in and the manner in which God has given us the word of God, do justice to the text, do justice to, to uh, God's working in this world, and come out in a manner that is right and balanced before the Lord. That's what we're going to spend the next three weeks considering. Now, our church would broadly associate more with the cessationalist point of view. And I say that broadly because as a manner of, of, of direct rule, we would not be a full cessationist church in that we do not regard that God is incapable or unwilling to necessarily use the gifts in the way that he sees fit in this age as in any age. But as we would recognize ourselves to be a church that would generally understand that God is not using signs and wonders as a regular function of the local church today, the question we have to ask is why? And this question needs to be backed by something foundational needs to be backed by something credible because as we step into the New Testament, we spent a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians today as we were talking through the Lord's table, we see the gifts described there. Quite a, quite, quite a bit, in fact. We see the, these gifts used in the book of Acts. So then how can we justify reading those passages of Scripture and saying we do not believe that these are regular functions of the local church? That's what we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. But as we would do with anything, so too I will encourage you to do with this particular controversy, that when two wings of a church, of the broader church in this sense, stand at polar opposite ends of one another, if you want to find the truth, start looking around the center of that pendulum swing. And then you can work one way or another from that center area. And that's what I hope you'll do with me as we walk through this over the next few weeks. So there's a great deal to talk about today. Naturally, this could be a much longer study than simply three messages, but I think these three messages will be thorough enough while helping us not get bogged down in the weeds of controversy or confusion. I'm going to articulate these points, I'm going to defend these points, and then I'm going to leave it to you, if you desire more, to do that study or to seek me out in, uh, on, in a different form, as it were, and we can talk through this more through study and prayer if you would desire to do so. So breaking our study into three general 
concepts, two, two primary sections, three general concepts over three weeks. This week we're going to look at Old Testament precedent. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God uses signs and wonders, number one, how has he used signs and wonders? When has he used signs and wonders? When has he chosen not to use signs and wonders? Unto what end has he chosen to use signs and wonders? If we can answer these questions, then we can get a general template for what signs and wonders are about. And then as we step into the New Testament, we can interpret the understanding of what we're seeing through the lens of what God is doing, right? Of how he uses them. It's not just, uh, God does not wield tools indiscriminately. If God used something in the Old Testament and then God used it again in the New Testament, we would expect there to be a common thread of how and why it is God is doing what he's doing. And if we can identify that common thread, then we can step outside of it and say, is that common thread valid today? Does God need to do today? Is God doing today what he was doing then? Is there a reason today for God to be operating under the same principles that he operated then? Or is that tool, while still in God's toolbox, put away for this time, specifically because of the nature of this time? So we start with the Old Testament. Then next week, we're going to go into the New Testament. And this is where we're going to look particularly at precedent as we see it in the Gospels, as we see it in the book of Acts. We're going to lay that foundation for what we see as it relates to how the signs and wonders were used. And what you're going to find, spoiler alert, is that there's going to be a, a real common thread between them. And then that final week, we'll take it and we'll apply. So then what do we do with it? And we'll lay out this, uh, hopefully, a coherent system of interpretation that will do justice to the word of God and to the character of God as it relates to signs and wonders. And remember, that's what we're trying to do here. By God's grace, we don't step into the Bible trying to prove our point of view. That's a really bad way to do things. You have a point of view, and this is what humans do, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Humans are not rational creatures. We tend to rationalize based upon emotion, and then once we come to our position, then we rationalize that position in some logical way. We try to prove our, our emotional position through rationalization. Well, we don't want to do that. We want to go to the Word of God and we want to see what God is doing. And then we want to draw out from what God is doing what we expect of Him so that God's Word is preeminent and not our thinking. And that takes humility. So may I encourage you to put on your humble hat this evening to come at these things from a manner that is looking for what God has to tell us, not looking for what you want to tell God. And we'll do this in a way to form a consistent strategy of interpretation because the God of the Bible is one God. He has not changed in character or purpose, though he has changed in methods over time, which means we would expect the reasons for God using or not using signs and wonders to be consistent over time. Okay, let's dig in. The biblical history of signs and wonders really begins with the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And take note of this concept. We might say, well, pastor, sure, the biblical history begins with the exodus, but how do we know they weren't around for much longer? Well, we don't. But here's the thing. We believe that God has given us in his word everything necessary to understand God and to rightly relate ourselves to him, right? This is foundational to our method of interpretation. If God has left gaping holes in our understanding of him or in our understanding of how to be rightly related to him, then he has not done a good job at revealing himself. But the Bible tells us God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. The Bible tells us that God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us. And the, God, and, and the Bible tells us that God has done so through his word. And so if we believe the Bible, then we must believe that God has given us what he wants us to have. And if he hasn't told us something, it's because he's not that invested in us knowing it. And that doesn't mean we can't still enjoy from time to time going out and speculating on things that God has not seen fit to tell us. But these cannot be foundational. These things cannot be that upon which we hang our hat because God has seen fit not to tell us. God has given us what we need, though. 
to rightly relate ourselves to him, to his plan, to his will. We can't know what we can't know, but we can know this. If God wants us to understand something, he'll tell us. And I'm not going to go to fallible men with their mythologies and their fables and their fallible histories to understand the spiritual nature of the world around us. I'm going to go to the only inspired and infallible source of spiritual understanding, the Word of God as taught to us through the indwelled Spirit of God. We're going to draw from that principles, and then perhaps at that point we can, as I said, explore some of these myths and fables and histories and whatever else to glean greater context or whatever the case may be, but only to the extent that we hold our utmost loyalty to God and to His Word. So regarding signs and wonders, we see in the days of Noah a great wonder in the heavens, right? God doing this thing, this uh, great judgment. But we don't see God working through men by means of signs and wonders until Moses in the Bible. So God introduces us in Exodus to this man named Moses. And he appears unto Moses in the burning bush, if you recall. We see an interaction that roots us in a measure of purpose regarding these things very early on. In Exodus chapter 3, and we will be in Exodus 3 for a little bit, so if you want to turn there, you certainly can. Of course, it'll be on the screen. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, the Bible says this, And when the Lord saw that he, that would be Moses, turned aside to see, that would be this bush that was burning but was not consumed, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto a, the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So God presents himself to Moses here saying that he was going to deliver the nation, that would be the nation of Israel, the people, the, the, the family of Israel from Egypt, lead them back into Canaan from whence they came. And he states that Moses will be the prophet through whom God would speak and by whom God would do this great work. And Moses is not exactly enthusiastic about this commission. So he begins a series of questions. We might call them excuses. If we're going to be gracious, we'll call them questions. Regarding the validity of God's claims. First, he says, Lord, who am I that you would choose me? To which God responds that it really doesn't matter who Moses is. <laughs> what matters is who God is. God says, I will be with you. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. I'm God. And he said that the proof that God had been with him would be that after the exodus, after they would leave Egypt... Moses would serve and worship God on that same mountain. So God gives a prophecy here that says, the proof that I will be with you is that you're going to come back to this mountain and, and, and serve me. Moses then asks, well, who should I say sent me? Who are you? So the first question is, who am I? God says it doesn't matter because I am me. <laughs> and then Moses says, well, then who are you? And God responds, I am that I am. He's the God of Abraham. He is the ever-existent God. And God lays out a plan for the Exodus. We're not going to walk through the whole thing, but he tells what is going to happen, how it is that this, this whole thing is going to take place. Moses then makes a third and a fourth objection. I'll only focus on the third because that's the point I'm driving to. We pick up our context in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath appeared unto thee, or hath not appeared unto thee, excuse me. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. 
And he said, cast it on the ground. And he, that would be Moses, cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. God then goes on to perform another sign of, of turning his hand leprous and then restoring it whole again. And God says, if they won't believe those signs, I'll give another. So that God then says in verse 9, And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river, and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. So we see that God introduces this concept here of signs and wonders. And notice why it is God has introduced them. Take note of this. This is essential. God has introduced signs and wonders as a means by which the prophet of God validates the message that it is from God. Take note of this. This is essential. The reason why Moses was given any signs and wonders was exclusively as a means by which to help the nation of Israel, to help God's people believe and understand that God was working through that particular man. And this is essential. So, by doing these signs and wonders, it establishes the authority by which Moses has the right to speak in the name of God and for the people to listen to him. And so the people see these signs and wonders and they say, this is a man of God. I should listen. Now, as we get into the Exodus itself, we find a duel between Moses and Aaron as the representatives of God and Pharaoh's magicians. You can read about that in Exodus 7 if you want to study it, if you're not familiar with it. Moses would perform a sign and the magicians would also perform this sign. The magicians were able to duplicate the sign and when they were able to duplicate the sign, and this was the serpent being tossed on the ground, even though Moses' serpent ate the other two serpents, um, by duplicating this sign, it removed from Pharaoh any sort of reverential fear that he may have had over Moses performing this, this sign and this wonder because these false God, these, the, the prophets of the false god, these false priests, were able to do it as well. Now, this is the first of, of several signs and wonders that we're going to see. Incidentally, Moses never uses the leprosy one as far as we know from the text. Am I right about that? I think I'm right about that. I just saw a few heads go, hmm? I didn't know if that meant I was wrong. But incidentally, we, ne we don't see that until Miriam, at least, right? And Miriam ends up becoming leprous at one point, but that was quite a ways down the road. So this becomes the first, uh, the first sign, and then we'd have 10 plagues that would be brought upon Egypt. This one exclusive sign then 10 plagues. And we find Pharaoh's magicians, through the power of what we would understand to be demonic spirits, were able to replicate the first three signs and wonders. The one sign, which is the serpents, the rods turning into serpents, and then the first two plagues. When the third plague arrives, the fourth sign, the third plague, it's a plague of lice. And in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, we read this in regard to the plague of lice. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. And all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments, enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, 
and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So when at once the magicians were no longer able to replicate these signs and these wonders, notice that their response was immediately to recognize that the level of authority that they were dealing with was well beyond the level that they regularly interacted with in the spirit realm. They were probably connected to some demonic forces, to some familiar spirits. It, it gave them some capacity, but when they were not able to duplicate this with their enchantments, they said, we're dealing with something bigger here now, Pharaoh. You need to start to think about this a little bit because this is, this is getting out of hand. This is beyond what we know. This is beyond what we understand. This is beyond what we can deal with. And if we might say it this way, what they were recognizing is that Moses' God was more powerful than their God's. And in fact, this was the purpose of the 10 plagues from a kind of a meta-narrative. What we find is that these various plagues, God choosing these various plagues, uh, in doing so, he was actually attacking the various gods of Egypt by turning the river into blood and having the frogs come out of Egypt and the lice and all of these things, uh, darkness falling upon the land. What he was doing is he was one by one systematically attacking each one of Egypt's gods and showing that, they, that these gods, the sun god and the Nile god, they were powerless against the god of Moses. Now, our point in this is that the signs and wonders were not simply conferred upon Moses as a prophet, where he was able to do whatever sign he wanted for no purpose whatsoever. God didn't say, hey, Moses, go into the land and Go at it, do, do whatever you want to do, do what comes to mind, and, and you're going to be able to do it. He wasn't able to conjure up anything. Moses was performing specific signs as a means by which to accomplish a purpose. In this case, it was a twofold purpose. It was to show Egypt that their gods were powerless, and it was to show Israel that this was the God of Abraham. There's purpose. Don't lose sight of that. God is having Moses perform these signs and wonders with direct purpose. Moses didn't, wasn't just given the power. God empowered Moses with signs and wonders unto an end to prove authority and credibility. And this is the function of signs and wonders as a method of establishing authority. And we're going to find this consistently in Old Testament and New. Look, look anywhere where there are signs and wonders. What you're going to find is God is using them to establish credibility, to establish authority, the authority of a message. So much so that this very principle is actually taught in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 13 is where we find ourselves next. Verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, Whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Skipping to verse 5. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have a problem here. God says, by signs and wonders, I will validate my authority. And then in Deuteronomy 13, which is some 40 years after he gave the law, right? Because they've been wandering in the desert now for 40 years. Deuteronomy is written just before Moses dies. Now he says, if somebody comes to you and performs a valid sign or wonder and then tells you to walk away from the law that you have been given, kill that man. <laughs> Don't listen to him. God instructs the nation regarding prophets who will do signs and wonders, speaking implicitly of the fact that this man will do signs and wonders in agreement with God's intended purpose to prove to the hearers his message. But, God says, if he does a sign or a wonder and his message disagrees with that which God himself gave them through the law, by which point, again, they'd had for 40 years, they were to reject those signs and wonders. Do you see how God actually makes signs and wonders subservient to his word here? He does not use signs and wonders as the end all be all. Signs and wonders are only a validation in alignment with his word. 
God appeared unto Moses and spoke through Moses and validated he was speaking through Moses through signs and wonders. But then what happened? They got out of Egypt and God spoke to them directly. And God says, if anybody tries to come and perform a sign and wonder, because he can. I mean, we saw it in Egypt, right? We saw it with the enchanters. And they are trying thus to divert you from the word of God. Reject the sign and the wonder because it's not about the signs and wonders. The signs and wonders are a means unto an end and that end is the authority of God, which is why he's only going to use it in times where the people need a mark of credibility. And you can know this in those times where God is using signs and wonders, he's not allowing charlatans to do the same. In the times where God is validating his authority and the church needs that, you're not going to go across the street and see enchanters doing the same because God is doing something and he's proving something. I cannot stress this enough. The point of the signs and wonders was to establish authority and validate a message. And if the established message of God is being contradicted by the one doing signs and wonders, that man is false. God says, hold to the word of God above the sign and the wonder. In Deuteronomy 18, God then instructs them about the nature of the prophetic message itself. I'm not going to go there this evening and, and talk through it. I, I probably actually could have, but at the time I was writing this, I, only, I didn't have three messages in mind. Um, uh, so um, I, I, I could go there, but you can study that out on your own if you'd like. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, that speaks to the nature of the prophetic message, whereas Deuteronomy 13 speaks to the nature of the signs and the wonders, where the sign and the wonder happens, but the prophetic message is wrong. In Deuteronomy 18, um, it speaks to the message itself and says, if a prophet comes to you with a message and he gives a prophecy with it, and that prophecy does not come to pass, then you know that that message was not for me, right? So there's a little bit of a different angle there that I would encourage you to study on your own. Now, we're going to walk through a little bit more of the Old Testament here, and as we do so, we see this idea play out with God's prophets at times performing signs and wonders, always with a specific purpose of validating their authority among the people. So when they would stand up and call them unto some measure of repentance or some action or some instruction, their authority was established and the people would know that what he was saying came from God and thus they would listen. Or they wouldn't listen, but they'd know what they were dealing with if they weren't listening. We know that Elijah and Elisha were major sign prophets, right? Calling fire down from heaven, transforming material items, even raising the dead back to life. We read of the altars of false gods rending in two. We read of God stopping the mouths of lions and quenching the violence of fire as we get into the prophets. These often being used in conjunction with prophetic promises of future blessings and cursings. Always, always, always turning the hearts and the minds of God's people back to God's word. They were not just used indiscriminately. They were not used to validate how good the prophet was. They were used to call the minds of the people to the word of God. Signs and wonders were always subservient to God's message. Now, as we walk into the minor prophets, we find far more emphasis put on future prophetic promises than we see put on signs and wonders. Uh, in the days of Isaiah, in the days of certainly um, Ezekiel, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, the days of Jonah, Jonah himself was a sign, right, to the Ninevites when he got spat out of a fish. The Ninevites' God was a fish god. If a prophet gets spat out of a fish and, you, and your God is a fish, your false God is a fish, and this prophet comes and says, this is a false God, the true and living God is in control of the fish who spat me out and tells you that in 40 days your whole city is going to be destroyed. You're going to listen to that guy because of the sign of this guy getting spat out of a fish, which is supposed to be your God. And he's telling you not to listen to the fish. Right? So we see all of these sign prophets, wonder prophets, and then we get into the minor prophets and we're kind of beyond that as it relates to the prophets themselves. The minor prophets, particularly those prophets which came about after 
the uh, captivity. These prophets were significantly more about prophecy, about future events. And the reason we might understand this to be is because many of these messages were actually not relevant to the people of that day. See, signs and wonders were intended to call people back to the word of God, but these prophets, and of course we see a lot of this in, in, in the major prophets too with Isaiah and Jeremiah, but these, these minor prophets in particular, they were giving a message not so much for the people of their day, but significantly more for the people of another day. They were written for those unto whom the word would come to pass. And we read this regarding the prophets and salvation, right? That salvation is one of the applications of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter writes, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. What good would it have been for a prophet prophesying of salvation and of grace to do signs and wonders in that day? The, the people in that day, the message is not for them. They will not be the recipients of salvation by grace through faith. So when will the signs and wonders be done? In the day of grace, right? In the day when it's time to validate the message. So they were prophesying of the message and prophesying of signs and wonders that would come. So we find that there were a number of messages that the prophets wrote that were designed in two ways. First, to be relevant to a certain group of people, and second, to be relevant to that certain group of people at a certain time in history. And outside of that certain group of people and that certain time in history, the prophecy itself is not necessarily relevant. Still relevant as a part of scriptural understanding, still relevant as a part of the character of God, still relevant as it relates to the nature of God's working in this world, but not necessarily, the, the, the prophecies of Pentecost are not directly relevant to me because Pentecost was 2,000 years ago. Now, it's relevant to me as an understanding of what God was doing, but the pro I will never see the prophecy of Pentecost unfold because it unfolded 2,000 years ago. That was specifically there for them for them then to record so that I could believe this book, right? And now I'm believing this book, not actually seeing flaming tongues of fire. That was for them in that day to that group. And now I have the written record of it that I am called to believe. Now with our final bit of time together in this first part, I wanna take you to the passage that is going to form the foundation for our interpretation of signs and wonders as they exist in the New Testament. And this passage will be one referenced in the New Testament and which anchors the way we understand, the way our church understands sign gifts. A passage written to the Jews, but written and understood by a group of Jews in a particular time of history. And this is the pa passage for those of you that have, give, have heard my more brief synopsis of what we believe about sign gifts. You're going to be familiar with this. The passage in question is Joel chapter 2. Joel 2 speaks of a time which we now call the end times. A day, as Joel 2 describes it, of darkness, of sorrow, of death, and of destruction, of earthquakes, of famines, of stars falling from the sky. And as Joel presents this prophetic promise, he is giving a promise in that day linked to signs and wonders at the time of fulfillment, right? And within this prophetic promise, it gives way to the promise of the Lord's return, of judgment and deliverance, for those in the nation of Israel who fear God's name and who are willing to turn to him with all of their hearts. And in doing so, Joel says, the Lord will bless them and will dwell among them. And following these prophetic promises, God then gives a summary 
with prophetic signs that would show to the people of the day wherein these signs would come to pass the initiation of the last days. So we read in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So we see a promise to the nation of Israel in a prophetic passage about their future. That in these days would be known by that, that the days in question, the days that Joel is speaking of, the days of the day of the Lord, would be known by a series of events, signs and wonders, that these days would be first initiated by the Spirit of God being poured out, and not just on them, but as Joel says it here, upon all flesh. This will be known by their sons and their daughters prophesying, by their old men dreaming dreams, and by their young men seeing visions. Second, then wonders would appear in the heavens and in the earth. Blood, fire, pillars of smoke, the sun being turned into darkness, the moon into blood. And all of this as the initiation unto the great and terrible day of the Lord, where God will bring to bear his deliverance of the nation of Israel as he has always promised. Now, this is given as one prophecy here in Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. But if you have listened to me for any length of time prophetically uh, teaching prophecy, you know that these things have not all happened contiguously in history. Much to the contrary, we find that the first promise, that the Spirit of God would pour out on all flesh, that the young men would prophesy, that the old men would dream dreams, that the young men would see visions, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Acts makes that very clear. The book of Acts, Peter specifically says that that portion of the book of Joel, we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago. But this second portion, blood, fire, pillars of smoke, the sun being darkened, the moon being turned to blood, that hasn't happened yet, has it? And as a matter of fact, it won't happen until the sixth seal is opened in Revelation chapter 6, where we read this. Notice, notice how closely correlated this is. Revelation 6, 12 through 14. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. That, that's Joel. That's this prophecy. Now, this sort of prophetic breakup is not uncommon in prophecy in Scripture, is it? We see it in the 70 weeks of Israel in Daniel chapter 9, where the first 483 years of that 490-year span is one year right after another. We see those 480 years in concert. But then after those 480 years, Daniel writes, Messiah shall be cut off. So we know that the 483 years ends, and then Messiah is killed. That's Jesus. And then following that, we see the initiation of the final seven years, of which when we compare with Revelation, those are the seven years of the end times that we have not yet stepped into, and we know that. So to this point, there is about a 2,000-year gap between the 483rd year and the 484th year in prophecy. It happens also in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. I'm going to go ahead and, I, these are, this isn't on the screen, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and ask you to turn there if you have your Bible so that you can see this. In Luke 4, verses 17 through 21, the Bible says in Luke 4, verse 17, uh, I'll begin in verse 16, and he, that would be Jesus, 
came to Nazareth. I'll give you a moment to turn. I'm not used to having you, <laughs> I'm not used to giving you time to turn. Give you a moment here. Normally I'm just going, 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 right? It's all on the screen. Luke 4, verse 16. And when he came to Nazareth, and he came to Nazareth when he had been brought up, where he had been brought up, excuse me. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias, that would be Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recover and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord." And he closed the book. Why that is interesting is because Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61 does not end there. If we were looking in our Bibles, Jesus read Isaiah 61 verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. And right after that sentence, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the part of the sentence Jesus did not read the part which he did not finish before he closed the book is this, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Why did Jesus stop where he stopped reading? Because he only came to fulfill the first part. The second part of that prophecy will not be fulfilled until the second coming of Christ. He stopped very deliberately where he stopped. And he stopped there because that's where his portion of the prophecy for his first advent ended. So we see this happening, right? It's not a surprise that it happens in Joel because it happens in Luke and it happens in Daniel. This is how God does prophecy. He sees it as one event because as we talked about last week, God is outside of time. It's all one thing to him. But in time, God is doing something that, that sometimes has pretty big gaps. So this concept is not a foreign one to Scripture. And what we have in Joel 2 is a promise to the nation of Israel that they would know when the final days of this earth had begun by specific signs and wonders. For our purpose, that first subset of promises, that the Spirit of the Lord would be poured out on all flesh, that their sons and their daughters would prophesy, that their old men would dream dreams, that their young men would see visions, and this was intended by God to be a sign and a wonder, a physical validation of God's stamp of divine approval upon a very specific message intended to validate to the Jews the authority of that message. And this is where I end part one, but let me give you this little sneak preview. Imagine you are a Jew that has the Torah and, you, and your culture has rather fundamentally misunderstood a lot of what God has been saying in the Old Testament. And now this man named Jesus comes and he is preaching this message. And of course, he is doing signs and wonders that validate that he is Messiah. And, and yet some Jews are not convinced or maybe they have not heard as in the day of Pentecost. And then Jesus dies and, and, and he's buried and he raises again and, and, and 500 have seen him at one time and they're testifying that they've seen the risen Lord. And now there's this thing that forms called the church. And as a Jew, this is outside of your wheelhouse of understanding. There's this new thing that's formed based upon this guy who said he was the Messiah. And in this new formation in this new entity that's being formed everyone is is open is, is allowed in jew or gentile there is no difference bond nor free there is no difference male or female there is no difference there's no court of the gentiles there's no court of women anymore we are all given access to the holy of holies we are all given the priesthood of the believers and you're trying to understand this and you say i don't know if i believe this and then you're you're there on the day of pentecost And you start to see the very promises of Joel 2 unfold before your eyes. And you say, I wonder if there's something to this. And you start to see the early church working and they are doing signs and wonders in the name of Jehovah God. The Jews aren't doing signs and wonders. These Christians are doing signs and wonders, many of whom are Jews, but not the, not the Pharisees and the scribes. 
not the Sadducees, these Christians are doing these signs and wonders. God's doing something, and he's proving it. He has a message, a message from, from, from the one that is the Son of God, a message now that is being disseminated by the apostles, and he wants people to believe that that message is true. How has God always and characteristically gone out of his way to prove a message, to validate a message in the ears of a people? Signs and wonders. Particularly signs and wonders that he had established at this point in the Old Testament as coming to pass. Now, next time we'll get into the New Testament concepts and then use that to establish our perspective. I hope you see where we're going with this. But just before we do, I want to jaunt back to our actual text to have you notice just how consistent what we just observed in the Old Testament as to how and why God uses signs and wonders is with what Paul teaches in Hebrews chapter 2 about the nature of God using signs and wonders in the New Testament. Notice what Paul says in Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Do you see what Paul said to this group of Jewish believers here in Hebrews? If God has given us a great message, one through his son, who is greater in authority and power than either the angels or the prophets, thus the law and the prophets, how much greater should we regard the commands of the son given by his mouth, confirmed by eyewitnesses, and then notice, witnessed to in the way God witnesses to these things. Signs, wonders, miracles. That's how God worked in the Old Testament. Would it surprise you that this is how God is going to validate his message to this generation of the church? In other words, Paul is appealing to the very Old Testament function of signs and wonders as the means by which God is establishing the divine authority of his message. With Paul arguing that these signs and wonders show that the message of the Son from the mouth of the church is valid through the signs and the wonders which the church is performing. And this will be the basis for our understanding of how they relate to the church as we conclude our thoughts in parts two and three. I, I don't... Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.